Hello everyone, this is just going to be a short video that was made uh, by the request of my buddy Pharaoh, who uh, asked me uh, to elaborate more fully when I said that libertarians typically get the arguments for free trade wrong. Now, I'm going to be leaning on the arguments of Ludwig von Mises, especially as laid out in his book Human Action, although I will use a few other sources as well. Uh, this is basically how he uh, describes uh, Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage or law of association or law of comparative cost. Now, rather than uh, reading this out, you know, it looks quite complicated. Let me just play a quick excerpt, four or five minutes long, from Foundations of Economics, where I lay out uh, the argument for international free trade. Uh, as expounded by Mises and Ricardo, and I, then I'll come back and explain what is typically left out and missed. Brings us on to what Mises calls the law of association, which is in his name for what others might call the law of comparative cost, which was first outlined by David Ricardo. Let us pretend that you have two groups of people, rival nations. One of them is better than the other in every respect. The reds are more knowledgeable and more skilled than the blues. Therefore, they have greater production capacity. The reds can make one shoe every three hours and one t-shirt every two hours. The blues, inferior in every way, can only manage one shoe every five hours and one t-shirt every four hours. So why, in this scenario, would the reds ever want to associate or trade with the blues? David Ricardo answered, argued that provided that each group specializes that they should trade in 60 hours the combined production of the reds and the blues would be 32 shoes and 45 t-shirts however if the reds specialized in t-shirts only that is using the 60 hours they would have spent on shoes on t-shirts instead to produce only t-shirts for 120 hours and the blues did the same with shoes their combined production would be 60 t-shirts and 24 shoes. This is more efficient production because while red's total production capacity is greater than blue's, blue produce shoes at 1.25 times slower than they produce t-shirts, while reds produce them 1.5 times slower. After one month of production, let's pretend the reds and the blues trade. The Reds offer 60 t-shirts for 40 shoes, which is exactly at their exchange rate of 1.5. The Blues work out that this wouldn't be good value for them, as their exchange rate is 1.25. So they haggle. The Reds cannot go up to 48 shoes, or they'd be getting no value. So they agree somewhere in the middle. Let's say 43 shoes. And so to compare, both the Reds end up with greater value than they would have done without trading, and so do the Blues. To try to make this clearer, let us convert this to some money amounts. The Reds use the Red Pound and the Blues use the Blue Dollar. One shoe is three Red Pounds or five Blue Dollars. One t-shirt is two Red Pounds or four Blue Dollars. We can see the Reds have made nine Red Pounds and the Blues have made 16 Blue Dollars. However, the other great gain made is unseen here. If the Reds and the Blues devote all 120 hours to t-shirts and shoes respectively, it means that they no longer need to maintain the factory they are not using. In fact, rather than shutting down, they could be using those factories to make other things. So we can end up with even more goods. 
and so it goes on. All right. So I hope that is uh, relatively straightforward. Foundations of Economics, of course, still available at the academic agency. Buy it now, etc. Um, but let me now uh, add some caveats to this basic argument that are uh, typically uh, ignored by libertarians today when they're arguing for free trade. Now, the first and most obvious thing to point out is that in Ricardo, capital and labor are said to be fixed. That is, they do, there is not freedom of labor migration across borders, and there's not freedom, freedom of capital. That is, capital tends to stay within uh, the nations rather than uh, people opening factories abroad. They reallocate their capital to open a new factory in Britain or in France or, or wherever. And Mises points this out in his own treatment. He says, people caval much about Ricardo's law of association, better known under the name law of comparative cost. The reason is obvious. This law is an offence to all those eager to justify protection and national economic isolation from any point of view other than the selfish interests of the producers or the issues of war preparedness. Ricardo's first aim in expounding this law was to refute an objection raised against freedom of international trade. The protectionist asks, what under free trade will be the fate of a country in which the conditions for any kind of production are less favourable than in all other countries? Now, in a world in which there is free mobility, not only for products, but no less for capital goods and for labour, a country so little suited for production would cease to be used as the seat of any human industry. If people fare better without exploiting the comparatively unsatisfactory physical conditions of production offered by this country, they will not settle here, and they will leave it as uninhabited as the polar regions, the tundras and the deserts. But Ricardo deals with a world whose conditions are determined by settlement in earlier days, a world in which capital goods and labour are bound to the soil by definite institutions. Now, I hope you can all see what Ricardo is taking for granted immediately here. In fact, I have a passage from Ricardo where he basically points this out. He says, It would undoubtedly be advantageous to the capitalists of England and to the consumers in both countries that under such circumstances the wine and cloth could both be made in Portugal, and therefore that the capital and the labour of England employed in making cloth should be removed to Portugal for that purpose. In that case, the relative value of these commodities would be regulated by the same principle, as if one were the produce of Yorkshire and the other of London. And in every other case, if capital freely flowed towards those countries where it could both profitably be employed, there could be no difference in the rate of profit and no other difference in the real or labour price of commodities than the additional quantity of labour required to convey them to the various markets where they were to be sold. Now, this is the really important point. Experience, however, shows that the fancied or real insecurity of capital, when not under the immediate control of its owner, together with the natural disinclination which every man has to quit the country of his birth and the connections and entrust himself with all his habits fixed to a strange government and new laws, 
checks the emigration of capital. These feelings, which I should be sorry to see weakened, induce most men of property to be satisfied with a low rate of profits in their own country rather than seek a more advantageous employment for the wealth in foreign nations. So, Ricardo, that's obviously not true today, by the way, but when Ricardo was writing, he he took it as a just a fact of the world. So you can see how Ricardo's idea is basically glommed onto a pre-existing world with fixed and definite facts about it. You know, people have a kind of fellow feeling towards their uh, countrymen, which stops capital flowing out of the country. Now, you remember, Ricardo was writing in the 1820s, uh, just after the Napoleonic Wars. So he was actually coming out of a time where protectionism was the norm. It was only after that point where uh, Britain started to liberalise, you know, uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws and then the laissez-faire uh, doctrine and all the rest of it. So the context is really, really important for when Ricardo was writing. This was also true of Mises, by the way, who was acutely aware of the difference between abstract axiomatic uh, theory, uh, such as his own uh, economic doctrines, and the lived reality, the empirical reality of what life was like, uh, you know, actually living in the real world. Um, and so he makes a very similar point. This is Mises now, who makes a very similar point uh, to Ricardo, only focusing on labour and not capital. He says, uh, the worker and the consumer are the same person. It is merely economic reasoning that integrates the social functions and splits up this unity into two schemes. Men cannot sever their decisions concerning the utilisation of their working power from those concerning the enjoyment of their earnings. Dissent, language, education, religion, mentality, family bonds and social environment tie the worker in such a way that he does not choose the place and the branch of his work merely with regard to the height of wage rates. Uh, and then he puts it even more starkly in another quotation which I have here where he says, we must not close our eyes to the fact that such views, uh, that is anti-immigration views, meet with the consent of the vast majority. It would be useless to deny that there exists a repugnance to abandoning the geographical segregation of various races. Even men who are fair in their appraisal of the qualities and cultural achievements of the coloured races and severely object to discrimination against those members of these races who are already living in the midst of white populations are opposed to a mass immigration of coloured people. There are few white men who would not shudder at the picture of many millions of black or yellow people living in their own countries. Again, true when Mises was writing. Hard to say how true that is today. But you see, the basic point is that even uh, Mises, who was an opponent of what is called historicism, had to be aware of the realities on the ground, the contingencies in which he was living. And now, with that in mind, let us return to his treatment uh, of Ricardo. And he says, It has been asserted that Ricardo's law was valid only for his age, 
and is of no avail for our own time, which offers other conditions. Ricardo saw the difference between domestic trade and foreign trade in differences in the mobility of capital and labour. If one assumes that capital, labour and products are movable, then there exists a difference between regional and inter-regional trade only as far as the cost of transportation comes into play. Then it is superfluous to develop a theory of international trade as distinguished from national trade. Capital and labour are distributed on the Earth's surface according to the better or poorer conditions which the various regions offer to production. There are areas more densely populated and better equipped with capital. There are others less densely populated and poorer in capital supply. The, there prevails on the whole earth a tendency towards an equalization of wage rates for the same kind of labour. Ricardo, however, starts from the assumption that there is mobility of capital and labour only within each country and not between the various countries. He raises the question what the consequences of the free mobility of products must be under such conditions. If there is no mobility of products either, then every country is economically isolated and autarkic, and there is no international trade at all. The theory of comparative cost answers this question. Now, says Mises, Ricardo's assumptions by and large held good for his age. Later in the course of the 19th century, that is, during the period of laissez-faire, so-called, conditions changed. The immobility of capital and labour gave way. International transfer of capital and labour became more and more common. Uh, especially interesting, for example, is the outflows of capital from this country by uh, capitalists uh, and investments in American enterprises uh, around the uh, you know late 19th century that was going on. Um, so you know the fellow feeling that Ricardo was talking about seemed to kind of give way in that later period uh, under the doctrine of laissez-faire. International transfer and capital and labor became more and more common, okay? Then came a reaction. Then came a reaction. And what he's talking about, Mises, is he's basically talking about um, the period in the early 20th century when people started putting trade barriers up again, tariffs came again, then there was World War One. then there was the interregnum, the inter the interwar period in which, uh, again, a lot of countries had uh, closed borders, uh, greater protectionism, um, Keynesianism was dominant. Obviously, you had the mid-century Germans and uh, kind of socialist war economies going on during that period. So there was a reaction, a pretty strong reaction, Today, and remember he's writing in 1944-45 at the end of the Second World War, capital and labour are again restricted in their mobility. Reality again corresponds to the Ricardan assumptions. So what's interesting about this, in my view, is that this law, which is said to be universal, actually only holds in periods where there is actually uh, kind of a de facto protectionist uh, world order. 
That is, for example, uh, in the period, uh, you know, between the wars, from the period, let's say, from 1914 to 1945, um, it was true. The argument for free trade was true. Um, but then it stops being true when capital and labor are freed up. The, in the interesting thing for me is that now it's obviously not true. You know, in the kind of neoliberal economic order where we have, uh, you know, written as the four freedoms of the EU, what is it? Freedom of goods, freedom of capital, freedom to establish and provide services, free, uh, free movement of people. Those are the four freedoms mandated by the European single market. Um, and they've been in place since 1986. They were actually established by the Treaty of Rome uh, in 1957, which, um, you know, was the forerunner document to the European uh, single market or common market, as it was known back then. And um, you can see that there's a problem here, isn't there? Because if you have free movement of capital and free movement of people, according to Ricardo, the argument for the free movement of goods breaks down. That is, according to the economic doctrine itself, you can't have all four freedoms at the same time. Ricardo explicitly didn't want that himself. And uh, he said that basically if that happened, all of the goods, the labor and the capital would go to one place and the other place will end up getting, basically getting ruined and you know nothing would be there. And as you look across Europe today, or as you look across Britain, and you look, uh, you look at the kind of post-industrial hellscape that these people have created, where, you know, just in the news, you know, this past week, um, you know, steelworks that I grew up, uh, at steelworks in Portal, but not far from where I grew up at all, I, I saw it very regularly, is, is now going to be closing down. It's now, in fact, the government is going to pay the uh, the Indians who've owned it for last twenty years or so to uh, to close down that steelworks. We're now seeing in action basically what Ricardo would have predicted, which is that if you don't have capital and labour held constant, some places are going to be dissolved. So, it, in in a way, the standard kind of classical economic uh, free trade argument relies on a prior set of existing institutions pretty explicitly. Both Ricardo and Mises explicitly take those existing institutions and social bonds and uh, kind of infrastructure framework for granted uh, in developing their arguments. If you allow all four freedoms, as the EU does, uh, basically it's a dissolving acid, right? Because you don't have a civilization, you don't have a nation or a society or anything unless something is held constant. And, you know, as I've been exploring in uh, uh, various streams and things, um, my one on Thatcher, the Americanization of Britain under Thatcher, yeah, that was a special one-off stream I did a couple of weeks back. The net result of opening up all of those things is basically that in record time, you dissolve everything because you have... Um, a situation of total mobility. That is, nothing is fixed. Um, uh, Thomas Carlyle would have called it 
nomadism. Uh, now, the, the immigration, the, the migratory aspect is the most visible, of course, but the capital a part of this is pretty important as well. You know, why are there no more factories in this country? Like, why didn't the capital reallocate from, let's say, coal mines that were closed down in Wales to, you know, a factory down the road? One of the reasons is, is because they all moved abroad to Mexico or to China or to some other bloody country. Um, and uh, again, that is because we have been governed, broadly speaking, for the past 40 years or so, maybe even longer, uh, by this idea that you have to have all four freedoms intact for it to be, quote unquote, proper uh, economic liberalism. So there could easily be a way of, you know, taking some of the benefits of free trade. You could say, well, I, in my um, trade theory, I believe in international free trade, but I want to be like a Ricardo purist. I want there to be fixed capital uh, within the nation, and I want there to be fixed or closed borders, because those are the preconditions to wit by which we get the bene the alleged benefits of free trade. So you could have something like a kind of um, a kind of a liberal nationalism, if you want, where it's like, well, we keep the capital part and the labor part. We don't allow those to move. We keep those fixed, uh, but we allow freedom of goods and freedom of services, for example, right, as one example. Um, so there's just something to think about. And typically, you know, when I see um, arguments for free trade on libertarian websites and so on, um, you know, this part, this these elements that I'm highlighting tend not to be, uh, they tend to be ignored. Um, and it seems indeed that the EU itself, um, you know, as a, as a institution, ignores these basic facts. All right, uh, that'll do. Uh, do buy my courses at the Academic Agency. Foundations of Economics still available um, if you enjoyed this. Uh, other courses like the Trivium and many others. Uh, buy it now and I'll see you later on for Cigar Stream. Now get out.